Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, joined as always by my two faithful co-hosts, Mr. Adam Shear and Mr. Mike Long. How's it going, gents? Doing Still well, kicking, Jerry. Jerry. Still kicking. <laughs> it's been like a long time since we did this, so I'm uh, got to get warmed up here. Yep. That that just reminded me, uh, Mike, when I was in college and I, I worked at a store, there, there was a regular who would come in all the time, and I would always say, how's it going? And every every single day, he would say, every day above ground's a good one. <laughs> go about his day (laughs) every day in the biff bites is a good one we'll 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 upgrade it a little bit (laughs) but we are continuing our snake draft of the cfp exam topics uh last time was adam's specialty of tax and this time, Mike, it's all about you. We got retirement on the document. Oh yeah! <laughs> Now's your chance to, uh, you know, come come from behind and uh, and get some of those. Come for, oh, get real! Come from behind. <laughs> I'm crushing this. I'm killing it. And this is a four hour episode, so you, you know. No one told me that. Left at the end of this. Oh, you didn't get the memo? No, I missed that yeah, one. Special four hour episode, just like uh, NFL. Uh, or game day or whatever the heck that is where they talk for six hours before the game and three hours after <laughs> mike's just gonna be reading uh irs uh retirement codes for uh several hours straight and loving it yeah. <laughs> uh well uh for those who might not have heard the previous uh episodes of this installment uh, we are going through all of the CFP exam topics uh, and basically picking out what we think are the most important topics for each section uh, for our students to really focus on in order to prepare for the exam. You know, if you can't study anything else, this is the stuff that you should study in order to have the uh, the greatest chances of being successful on the exam. So without further ado, I, I believe I am starting off uh, this, this iteration. Uh, I was left off on my pick for the snake draft. I am going to go for my first pick in the retirement section, defined benefit versus defined contribution plans. Uh, I think this is a really key concept uh, for students to really understand because at the core of things, all retirement plans really do fall into these two main categories. Is it a defined benefit plan or is it a defined contribution plan? And the CFP board loves testing on these and especially they love testing on suitability. You know, what type of clients are going to be more likely to go for a defined benefit plan? What type of clients are going to be more likely to go for a defined contribution plan? And being able to to pick that out and recommend it is going to give you a a big leg up on the exam. You know, what we have to remember is, you know, these things are exactly what they sound like. You know, a defined benefit plan is the plan is giving you a specific benefit in retirement. It doesn't matter how much money you contribute while you're working. Uh, you're going to get a set amount uh, when you retire versus defined contribution, where 
we're putting in a specific dollar amount into the plan during the work years. And then you just get what you get and you don't get upset when you finally retire. And depending on the type of uh, work you are, how old you are, you know, some of those are going to be better for others. Uh, you know, if your uh, employees are mostly uh, older employees who don't have a lot of years until they retire, they're going to much prefer a defined benefit because they don't have that long time frame to build up that wealth. They'd rather just get that set amount in retirement, you know, things like a pension versus, uh, you know, if all of your employees are very young, they're more likely to want a defined contribution plan because they have years and years and years to build up that wealth. And ideally, that built up wealth will equal a greater payout when they finally retire. So uh, if you can just divide the different retirement plans into those two main categories, uh, it'll really kind of set the foundations for helping you make more sense of all the more specific plans that you dive into as you go deeper into uh, the retirement section. So that's my long-winded explanation of why defined benefit versus defined contribution is the most important retirement topic. That's a pretty strong pick. I I was hoping you'd come out with something lame, uh, but that, that's pretty strong. <laughs> so I think Adam, he's sensing he's way behind. I, so I think he that's had fair. To lead with a powerhouse pick with that, but. It, but it is a good now nah, the, the the way to win is to to go hard and never let up <laughs> never let up mike no mercy, mercy. <laughs> no nah, nah, that's good and you're exactly right actually just covered that last night we kicked off a new cohort with uh the bryant um retirement class the fifth <laughs> course in the series and we talked about that last night that that's the first gotta know thing is that there's only two major categories db and dc and then start filling in the blanks from there as the studies go on. But at least understand right out of the blocks, there's just two categories. And, and what does it mean to be DB versus DC? So a nice pick. Agreed. And you know what? Not only is that in the Bryant education, but Mike, you put together some awesome materials on these two topics in the Biff Review. And uh, I remember learning this when I was studying for the CFP in a different program. And it was like learning the wall of, of text, but that you just had to, you know, individually each plan I was learning this feature, that feature, the other feature, another feature, but the way that you've put it together in our program is yeah, the, the big categories are the DB plans and the DC plans and anything that falls below it shares all those characteristics, but here are the differences. And in uh, just watching you deliver those classes, I think it's a really efficient way to teach this stuff. But yeah, great pick, Jerry. Great materials, Mike. Strong start here, folks. Excellent. And with that, Mike, I believe it is your pick. What is first on your docket? So this is a this is an interesting topic to me every uh, every exam cycle because it's something that we all think we know all about it until we get to exam land and it's like, oh wait, what? How's that work? And, and so I'm going with Roth IRA distributions. And I just see a lot of confusion every exam cycle because the big picture is, well, yeah, yeah, I know that. You put in after-tax dollars, you don't deduct what you put in, but then it's all tax-free coming out. And that's not necessarily the case. So there's two pieces of this we have to understand for the CFP exam. <clears throat> and one is what we're really after in the Roth is a qualified distribution. Qualified distribution means that we can empty everything, including the earnings, 
from over the years, and it's all going to be tax-free. That's what we're after, and that's the big picture understanding that everybody has. But yet there are requirements for that. The first is they have to satisfy a five-year holding period. There is no way to have a qualified distribution without meeting a five-year holding period. And then, and then another requirement is one of four circumstances must exist that's associated with this distribution after five years. And that is the death of the owner, the disability of the owner, first time home purchase, which has a very limited amount you can use for that. And then attaining age 59 and a half. As long as one of those four circumstances exist and the account's been held five years, they can distribute everything in there tax-free. Where the confusion happens is a couple of places. One, we're so programmed through traditional IRAs to that age 59 and a half. And I have a lot of students that think you can never have a qualified distribution from a Roth unless they're 59 and a half. That's not true. As long as the five-year holding period is satisfied, death, disability, or home or first-time home purchase could happen basically at any age, right? After the five-year holding period. Mm-hmm. So it's not linked directly to age 59 and a half, but it's one of the circumstances that could exist. Then we have to separate that from just understanding the Roth distribution ordering and what comes out first, because it's still possible to make tax-free distributions from a Roth, even when it's not a qualified distribution. The requirements haven't been met. Still possible to have a tax-free distribution based on how deep into the distribution ordering the amount being distributed gets. Because the first layer that's distributed in a Roth are all of the regular contributions that have been made over the years. It all comes out tax-free. So if the distribution doesn't go beyond that, it's all gonna be tax-free. The second layer is conversion contributions that have been made. And when we make Roth conversions, we pay taxes on the amount in the year that we convert it. So that amount too is going to come out tax-free. If it comes out before the conversion contribution has been in there five years, it could be subject to a 10% penalty, but the conversion amount can come out tax-free. So we've got two layers that can have tax-free distributions. The third layer that comes out are the earnings. And to get the earnings tax-free, we have to have a qualified distribution. So on an exam question, you just have to look at the three layers and how big is the distribution being made and how many layers does it cover to be able to to pinpoint the tax treatment of that distribution. I get all kinds of questions uh, about that every time we, we teach it on a topic that we think, yeah, everybody knows about Roths. So that's my first bit. Yeah, that's great points, Mike. And then I would also add on to that is for the five-year rule. Uh, the CFP board loves testing the five years start when the account was actually set up. And by that, what I mean is, you know, if you do a prior year funding, you know, let's say I opened a Roth this year in 2023 in February, I could do a prior year contribution to it. And that five years would officially start in 2022, even though I technically opened the Roth in 2023. That's a real common question that the CFP board throws at you on the exam to try and trip you up. Yeah, great point. And and it starts when you do that January 1st Mm -hmm. of the year for which you're making the the contribution. So you basically can, can shave one of those years off. 
uh, in that holding period by making it designated for the previous year. Yeah, I like it, Mike. And, you know, uh, call me ad man. This this recording, I'm going to plug another couple of Biff resources out there because there's some great ones that you've recorded, um, both on qualified and non-qualified uh, Roth withdrawals. And uh, you use this really great analogy of of red light, amber light, green light, um, as far as what we need to be aware of with the distributions and the ordering and how all that works together. So uh, Biff Bites YouTube channel has those two videos. Check them out for sure. Look at you. Plug in the plug yeah, in the man. resources. <laughs> I've been noticing you've been wearing a lot of uh, Biff bling and Biff merch and stuff. Are you, are you getting paid in merch for your your little endorsements there? I mean, Jerry had me record this thing and then he like tripled the the speed of it. And he said, we have to put this at the end of this episode if you're going to be plugging things again. So um. <laughs> it sounds like a, uh, so, you know, so. a biotech uh, drug uh, disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm going here, right? Yeah. And you're going twice snake draft. All baby. right. Here we go. Um, Let's 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 drop some beats here, folks, because I'm going with ISOs, ISOs, baby and non-qualified stock options. I'm going to try to mash these two together and see if it works. Uh, this is a common point of confusion uh, for a, a lot of CFP exam takers. This is a topic that we have had some requests come in to, to cover in one of these episodes, uh, but it is really important. And so we're dealing with with executive style compensation and stock options, right? And there really are two varieties and there are different uh, tax treatments and different requirements to make the most out of these stock options. Um, and th th I don't even know how to do this succinctly. I'm not going to even try. But will I, what I will share is that we look back to tax planning. I often have students throughout a review cycle say, when are we talking about AMT? AMT is so confusing. When are we talking about it? I'm really nervous about AMT. And what I share with them is that ISOs in particular have by far the most common place that you're going to see anything AMT related on your exam. Because what happens with ISOs is when they're exercised, there is an AMT adjustment that occurs. So uh, we won't get into the specifics there, but just know that associating AMT with incentive stock options, right? And specifically what happens at the exercise, right? So there's a positive AMT adjustment that gets you a, a good distance of the way to eliminating a few answer choices at the very least with ISOs. Um, next thing with ISOs, just know your holding period requirements. What I used to, to share with students is, Stand at the date of sale. And as you look backward in time, we need the distance from sale to exercise to be at least a year, from sale all the way back to grant to be at least two years for it to be a qualifying um, ISO sale. And the real benefit there is that with the ISOs, that whole stretch of gains can qualify for long-term capital gain treatment, which is really great. Uh, Non-qualified stock options slightly different in how they're treated between the different phases tax-wise. Um, but just know that the real benefit there is going to happen in the spread from exercise to sale. There's a possibility of long-term cap gains. And um, the segment from grant to exercise 
is going to be treated as ordinary income. So just a, a topic that I think all of us can agree, just spend time understanding the mechanics and actually go a little bit deep here. You know, there are some CFP topics you don't have to get into the weeds in. I think this is one you have to know pretty well, uh, but at least make that connection to, to the AMT world. Because I, I just don't think it's reasonable for you to know the nitty gritty on AMT on an exam like your CFP exam. But we always like to think, where's the most likely place you're going to see a complicated topic like AMT pop up? And it's here. Because a lot of people do get stock options through their work, especially if they're a higher up corporate exec. And um, knowing how to navigate that is often why they'll they'll seek out a financial planner like you. So that's my first pick. ISOs, non-qual stock options. Yeah, that's a good pick. And really heavily tested on, uh, especially because a lot of you know clients working in the tech world, a lot of their total compensation comes from these ISOs and NSOs. So certainly something that uh, you know advisors are going to more than likely deal with over their uh their life i remember when i started at fidelity fidelity had an entire department just for isos you know if you had any iso questions it was like, all right send your clients to these guys because they literally just do isos all day every day wow what a resource huh yeah yeah i want you to sing some of that adam iso iso baby maybe we'll have a jam session dedicated Iso Iso Baby featuring Adam Vanilla Iso Sheriff. Vanilla That's got some Iso. ring to it. Oh boy. What Vanilla a what Iso. a bad nickname I think we just fell upon here. Vanilla Iso. It's you, man. It's you. <laughs> All right. Stop, collaborate, and listen, fellas. I'm going on to my next pick here. Um, <laughs> um you know, the the IRS has has these moments where it looks like they're really giving taxpayers a nice benefit. And one of those happens to be, um, in our qualified accounts, the ability to put pre-tax money into the accounts and have it compound over time. Um, the IRS isn't so friendly as to let that go uh, from the time you open the account and start funding it uh, until you pass away. There comes a point in time where they're going to tap you on the shoulder and say, um, it's RMD time and the IRS wants to get paid. So RMDs are my second pick. Um, I think as far as RMDs go, just be aware of the RMD age, be aware of the RMD formula. I mean, how do you actually calculate that? Uh, don't be too worried about some of those IRS table factors and memorizing them. The information you're going to need is going to be provided for you. And really what to hone in on Client's age, the factor that goes along with that, and then the end of year balance of the prior year on uh, twelve thirty one of that year is going to be what we're going to build that required minimum distribution off of. Uh, be aware of the penalties that are associated with this. Be aware of how you treat RMDs uh, with your various types of accounts, right? Uh, specifically with Roths, right? They're going to be kind of outside of the mix here. But also, what if what if the client's continuing to work? Uh, beyond the age of RM of the traditional age in which you would you'd be forced to take these distributions. Um, so yeah, that's I mean it's it's not the the most fun topic in practice, but it's something you should prepare for. And um, you know, it, it there's something that's satisfying about being on a call where a client's taking an RMD 
And uh, the person at the broker dealer says, would you like for us to calculate that for you? And you're like, nah, I got it. So get to a place where you're like, nah, I got this. Uh, be prepared for just a, a pretty wide variety. But I think ultimately it's going to come down to um, age, amount of the account balance, what's the RMD that they're going to be required to pay? Good one. Definitely something that everyone's, well, not everyone, but m- most people, you know, if you get hit by a bus, I guess you don't have to deal with RMD. <laughs> I guess your beneficiaries will have to deal Somebody with Somebody will, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone's going to have to deal with those RMDs. That's a penalty <laughs> exception, by the way. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's a good October. one. It's rich. It's rich for the exam. It, it's simple. You get those steps down that Adam's talking about, but there are so many ways to come at that for mm-hmm. the exam on the amount, the timing. One of the popular exam questions is they defer the first RMD uh, to April the next year. And then we got to know in that next year, you got to take two. You got to take the one for the previous year and for the current year. Uh, the first one by uh, in April, by April, and then the other one by the end of the year. So there's just so many moving pieces with that. It makes it a great exam topic. So I'm glad I'm glad you picked that one. Good, good stuff. All right. Am I up uh, for the double pick? I think so. I am going to, you know, as always, my second pick is my meta pick, my my gaming the system pick. And I am going to go with NUAs. Uh, And that's just because most advisors are probably not going to deal with NUAs in their career, probably haven't dealt with them uh, before. Uh, It's not something that comes up uh, for a lot of clients unless you have a very specific subset of clients. So for that reason, most advisors just don't have much experience, if any at all, with NUAs. So it really makes a good topic to buckle down on and spend some good time studying because it definitely gets tested. So uh, for those who don't know, NUA is all about uh, clients who have uh, stock in the company that they work in in a qualified plan. And that's the big difference. You know, people get NUA confused with ISOs and NSOs all the time because they both deal with employer stock. But the big difference is with NUA is that employer stock is in a qualified plan. And when you leave that company, you have to uh, take some special tax treatment in order to take the distribution of that of that employee stock. So when you take the distribution, your cost basis in the stock gets taxed at ordinary income. And then when you sell that stock later, uh, the difference between the cost basis and the distribution price gets taxed at long-term capital gains, regardless of the holding period. So it's just a very specific way to go about it. There's a lot of other niche rules involved with it, like for example, you can't take a partial distribution. You have to take 100%. It's all or nothing. That's a subject that uh, gets tested on pretty frequently on the exam. So there's lots of little you know, twists and turns with NUA that get tested on frequently, even though most people are just not going to have to deal with this in their day-to-day. And because of that, you're going to really want to study this because you're not going to be able to fall back on that real-world experience to bail you out. Yeah, agreed. And it, but it's an important question an advisor needs to be asking uh, when there's stock in 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 a qualified plan. Is any of the stock in your plan employer stock? There's some special tax things to consider, and I think 
we need to be just conditioned to ask that kind of question uh, in real life, even though a lot, it will never be the case. Uh, but when it's available and they're in a position to take advantage of it, it can be difficult to take advantage of it because that employer basis has to be recognized uh, <laughs> yeah. in the year of distribution, which could be a huge tax hit. Um, but when it does work, it works great as long as we continue to have these wide spreads between the um, marginal brackets and long-term capital gain brackets. There's some real savings to be had there if it works for the client. Yep, exactly. It is important. Most of the clients get turned off when they hear it's an all or nothing type deal and then they're going to get taxed ordinary income. And they're like, oh, second thought, I'll just leave that money in there. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that right now. All right. And for my second pick, kind of coming off your uh, your Roth IRA distribution uh I'm taking it on the other side of things, Mike. I'm going with IRA contribution rules because this is another subject that, you know, a lot of people think it's like, oh, I got that. You know, I deal with IRAs all the time. I know those rules. It's fine. I don't need to study that. And then they get blindsided by some of the more, uh, you know, specific aspects of it. So IRA contribution rules super important, heavily tested on. Uh, and it's important not to get confused and mixed up with them because uh, IRAs and Roth IRAs get treated very differently. So, uh, you know, with the Roth IRA, they eventually kind of shut the door in your face. You know, if you make too much money, your AGI is too high, you can't make a contribution to the Roth IRA. Uh, whereas with the traditional IRA, uh, you can always contribute to the IRA. The question is, do you actually get to deduct that contribution? And that that deduction depends on, well, are you an active participant in a uh, another qualified plan? So do you have a 401k at your workplace? If so, your deduction uh, for that IRA contribution is going to also be limited to your AGI. And I think that's why people get these rules confused a lot is they see the thresholds between the, you know, the AGI for the Roth cutoff and then the AGI for the uh, IRA uh, active participant cutoff. And they get those mixed and muddled together and they kind of just forget what, what actually happens where. So it's very important to keep those two things separate, uh, keep those two things straight. And the good news is you don't really have to memorize any of the dollar thresholds because it's all on the CFP board's tax table sheet. So focus on the mechanics of it, focus on how it works, and then fall back on the on the tax tables for the actual dollar amounts. Uh, don't waste, you know, valuable brain space memorizing facts and figures that are just given to you on the exam. So for that, the contribution uh, rules for IRAs is uh, going to be my final pick of retirement. Good one, Jerry. I like it, especially that note about about contributions. Those mm -hmm. those limits are for deductions, and uh, and it does get a, a little bit more complicated, right? When you have spouses and one spouse is working active participant, the other one's not. Uh, but just with with walking that through and and looking at some of those income thresholds, and uh, obviously knowing how to calculate phase outs, I think that's a big thing that go that gets paired with this. But this is a, a must know, in my opinion, to to get those points on the retirement section. 
Yeah. And it's, it's classic RTFQ because yeah. I've seen questions that are literally word for word. The only difference is one question says, what is the IRA contribution amount? And the other one is what is the IRA deduction amount? And those are two very different numbers, even in the same situation. Very good point. All right, yeah, Mike, it's on you. All right, my my second one, hopefully uh, we can cover pretty quickly, but I'm always interested in the number of questions that I get when we get into this. And my second my second pick is the aggregation of elected deferrals across various plans. Certainly in exam land, they like for somebody to have more than one job. <laughs> and I guess in reality, that's that's there's a lot of people working two jobs in reality too, right? Yeah. Uh, but certainly in exam land. And both jobs have plans into which the employee can make elected deferrals. Maybe both employers have a 401k. Maybe one has a 401k and the other one has a 403b. We need to keep straight in exam land and in real life that there is one overall limit. In 2023, the regular elective deferral limit is $22,500. That's the maximum no matter how many plans the person participates in. It's not 225 at every employer. It's between them. So if they max out at one employer, they can't make elective deferrals at the next employer. And there's one exception that always gets tested. If the other employer sponsors a section 457B plan, a governmental plan that looks a lot like a 401k, that doesn't count. So it's not aggregated. <laughs> In that situation, they can max it out at both employers. That's often an exam question. And the other nice little nugget about the 457B is if that's the only plan the person participates in, they are not considered an active participant for IRA deduction purposes. So that shows up on the exam. So we have to understand that that's going to be one limit across the plans, but the employer money that gets contributed to plans is unique to each separate non-commonly controlled company. So if we have an annual additions limit of 66,000, and there, let's say there's two 401k plans at these two separate and unrelated employers, the elective deferral limit would be 22.5, but a lot of these plans run alongside profit sharing plans as well. And the employer will also make a profit sharing contribution. So there's 66,000 in the plan that the, the person is, is deferring 22.5, the employer could then put the difference up to 66,000. But at that second job, even though the person could not defer anymore into their 401k because they maxed out at the first job, the employer could contribute the full annual additions limit of 66,000 at, uh, at that second job. They are not aggregated. So employee deferrals aggregated across plans, employer contributions to a qualified plan not aggregated across plans. That's the simple note to take for, for exam purposes. Good stuff. Yeah, I love uh, all these questions that are assuming that Everyone's clients are, uh, you know, C-suite executives who sit on like eight different board of directors and, <laughs> you know, have access to all the plans, uh, retirement <laughs> across the board. That's a good one, Mike. Um, am, am I up here? Uh, I believe. Yes, it is oh, you, boy. Adam. Oh, your, your double pick. Oh, I only have one left. 
<laughs> um, I'll give mine, and then I guess we could. We'll just volley it back to Mike. Um, all right. I'm I'm gonna go with uh, self employment tax. It's uh, yeah. You you could say all right. Well, Adam, that's that's in the tax world. It, it is, but uh, the reason I think we place it in retirement in our program is for a couple of reasons. Number one. Uh, the self-employment tax is going to be for both Social Security and Medicare uh, for self-employed individuals. Um, number two is that for self-employed individuals, this is a, a key part of, of figuring out the, the, the sequence of steps to take yourself from net self-employment earnings, figure out how much of that's going to be deductible, because what happens with self-employed people is that they're paying both sides of uh, Social Security and um, Medicare. So that 15.3 is actually percent in total uh, is actually going to have to be fronted by that self-employed person. Uh, what the IRS does, they give them a deduction of half of that. They say, all right, you, the employer, is able to get a deduction for this. You, the employee, still needs to pay it. Uh, but what that flows through to is that if you have... Uh, a retirement plan uh, for yourself and you're self-employed is it factors into just what the maximum contributions amount uh, could be. It is one thing that I think we've seen time and time again in the BIF review where students really, really uh, struggle with pieces of this. Uh, there is a pattern and the way that, that our team teaches it, Mike teaches it specifically here, at BIF is learning the actual calculation uh, to figure out how much is that is going to have to be paid. Uh, one one final piece that comes into play here on your CFP provided tax tables. There's a little bit about these thresholds for the additional Medicare surtax uh, that could also be into the mix uh, for another 0.9 percent if uh, that taxpayer clips a couple of earnings thresholds depending on their filing status. So self-employment tax, I'd say just get comfortable running the numbers through the entire thing and know that some of those points where you could be questioned on how much is deductible as an above the line deduction for that self-employed person, what is the total self-employment tax that's going to be paid here, how much in total is going to be paid into social security. Uh, how much is going to be paid into Medicare? And with that piece, you, you also have to be aware of where that wage-based limitation is for, for the Social Security side. So yet another concept that has all these different branches, but I'd say start with just the pure calculation and then start layering in some of those other specifics and you'll get those points. Yeah, that's a tough one, especially when you then roll in like we have to in the review roll into what's the maximum contribution to a self-employed retirement plan the person can make because they're interrelated and it gets pretty uh, confusing. And the uh, I also get a lot of questions uh, during the review about that deduction, Adam, where the self-employed can deduct uh, on the 1040. Uh, I believe it's for AGI, right? Yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's for mm -hmm. AGI. Yep. Uh, half of what they paid in that self-employment tax. So... Sometimes students say, why? Why is it like that? 
you know, and in the urgency of exam prep, you want the answer to be, don't you worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Just know it's there, (laughs) you know, but, uh, and I don't know that I've ever come up with any great explanation of that, but here's my take. Tell me what you think. Um, The reason they, the IRS allows the self-employed to deduct half of their self-employment tax on the 1040 is to try to level the playing field with how employees have it. Uh, An employee pays 7.65% of their wages to pay for social security and and, and Medicare, and the employer matches it. They also make a contribution in that amount. But as the employee does not have to pay taxes on the amount the employer contributes to uh, social security and Medicare. So enabling the self-employed to deduct that half, it's the same as the employee not having to pay taxes on the portion that the employer pays for them. That's for all these years, that's always been my own rationalization. Does does that make sense, Adam? Yeah, I, I like that. Definitely. <clears throat> and it is that half. I always thought of, yeah, you're 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 the employee, you're the employer. Let's do we're gonna give you the little benefit of of deducting the employer half. And and I like that, Mike, that it, it just lines up with the way everyone else that's a W-2 employee working for a company somewhere is, is going to have their Social Security and Medicare taxes treated. Yeah, it's just hard as an instructor when you get the, well, why? What's what's the IRS logic? Because <laughs> they that, said so. Because they said so. That's got to be the answer in, ex- in exam. No. Just, just know that's how it works. Don't worry about what they're thinking. Because they're often not. All right. Just keep moving. Isn't that the truth? Often comes up with a lot of with a lot of IRS type stuff. I hear that in the tax planning. Why do they do this? And sometimes there's a good reason for it. That there's there's a case that happened in the past, or people were taking advantage of something in the tax code. But other times it's just like, well, this is just the way it is, and and there's really not something we could point to and say it's this way because of this. Um, and sometimes we just have to say, well, this is how it works, and we need to know how to deal with it when it comes to clients. That's a good one. So I think I'm up then last, right? Yeah, I think we screwed the order up somehow, but we'll just roll We'll roll with it. <laughs> I think Adam might have done a double earlier. I did um, do a double. Yeah, that was my third. So Mike, you you just have to get your third in. And I think, Jerry, correct me if I'm wrong, but then... I already I did all my three, so... Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> Let's close it out. This is We're bringing in the closer from the bullpen here. There you yeah. go. <laughs> throw some retirement heat yeah well uh yeah so for the final pick to close this episode out uh, um i'm gonna go with um inherited iras distribution requirements for inherited iras a lot of confusion with this with the secure act squashed the old stretch ira concept where uh, an IRA owner would name a beneficiary, and then that beneficiary would name a beneficiary, and that beneficiary would name a beneficiary, and it would stretch out the payout from that IRA over generations, literally, and therefore stretch out the IRS collection of the taxes. So the SECURE Act is, makes an attempt to squash that. You can't just run it on forever. And they came uh, up with this 10-year drain. And so the general rule is that an inherited IRA uh, must be distributed over a 10-year period, starting with the year following the year of death of the, of the owner. And at first, we all interpreted that as nobody needed to do anything until the end of the 10th year, and then they needed to 
they needed to drain it completely. And the IRS issued a, a classification or clarification on that uh, this past year that says if the IRA was already in RMD status at the time of the death, then um, a non-eligible designated beneficiary is going to need to take distributions in year one through nine after that death and then have it completely uh, emptied by the end of the 10th year. So they clarified that. That's how they meant it to work all along. Now, there are some categories of beneficiaries who can continue to stretch. And those categories are the spouse. The spouse has the most options because they can do anything, right? They can make it their own or they can be treated as a beneficiary and they can base distributions over their own life expectancy. Another category is a disabled beneficiary or a chronically ill beneficiary. Another one uh, that can at least start the stretch is a minor child of the owner. But they, they can, so they can start distributions based on their own life expectancy. But then when they reach age 21, it flips into a 10 year drain situation. So 10 years starts from the time they reach 21 and then they're gonna to have to empty out. And then the, the last category of eligible uh, designated beneficiaries is um, someone who is a beneficiary that's younger than the deceased owner but not more than 10 years younger, they too can base RMDs on their own life expectancy. But in the exam, you might get an eligible designated, probably gonna be the spouse, frankly, but then you, I think you're more likely to get one that is maybe the brother, maybe the cousin, someone unrelated, and you're gonna need to know that there's a 10 year drain and then now watch for was the IRA already in uh, RMD status at the time of the death? Because they're going to need to make distributions in one through nine and empty it at the end of the 10th year. Lots of questions about this. Honestly, <clears throat> I can't say that I've heard that a lot of this has made its way into uh, the exam, but I keep thinking this is the cycle. This is the cycle because the SECURE Act has been out there a long time now. And, uh, and now with the clarification on, on the years one through nine, I just think this has got to be the cycle. But then the cycle passes like, no, I really didn't have anything on that. <laughs> so I don't know, guys, how you feel about that. But I, I just think we need to be ready for this new inherited IRA question. Absolutely. I, yeah. This is the stuff that people are deal dealing with right now in real practice. I mean, this is live and people have to know how to work with it. So I think just in that alone, that where we've moved on from the stretch, it's it's in the past now, and this does really impact people in their retirement. Um, so I, I'm I'm saying to the the candidates out there, listen to what Mike just shared here. Go a little bit deeper into your your inherited IRA rules. Learn those categories, and then learn the rules that apply. Yeah. Yeah, like can't say it better myself. All right, so good good picks, guys. Yeah, with that, uh, we will wrap up the retirement draft pick. We only got one more, guys. One more category left: the wonderful estate planning. Oh, we're we really going to do that. Look right? out! <laughs> you want to just skip estate planning, Mike? <laughs> Here's the hint: not even instructors like the estate planning. <laughs> 
you know, I kid about that, but in my own life, there's stuff that's like, I'm glad I learned that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, in CFP studies, because I, I came to the CFP study table with zero knowledge yep. about any of that, because I was doing almost exclusively retirement plans after about one year mm -hmm. in the business, and it just never drifted into uh, to estate planning, but, but now... I'm glad I know a lot of that stuff and, and at least know where to go find more information about things that directly pertain to me. So I think there is a benefit in it, even though we always give, we always give Adam a hard time uh, about estate planning. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's the, the last uphill climb um, usually in our CFP education course. Uh, yeah. Maybe we should reverse that. And the first course should be estate planning. Second all downhill. course tax. <laughs> And and, <laughs> and then roll on. <laughs> That's a good point, right? We build up some momentum and confidence getting through those two monster topics, and then getting to stuff that's that's a little more familiar and 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 really useful uh, with with the retirement and all the other categories. But we do have some some good, you know, top threes. I think that we're all going to bring into this estate planning and. Uh, you'll be well prepared with, I mean, what is that? We're, we're, we're given quite a bit of, uh, of our picks in here. And, and are we going to get this all compiled in, in maybe a, a graphic? I, yeah. I've been, I've been keeping track. I have all of our picks from all the okay. categories. Have so you really? <laughs> I thought we were going to put a little poll out there and let people vote. I'd on love it. to. Yeah. Let's do it. You know, who got the best picks? I don't know. I think Adam has tainted that now because he's been he's been throwing around some Biff bling and 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 merch. So he may have tainted that voting pool uh, with these freebies. <laughs> I would never do such a thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> what am I thinking? Here's the real the real motive behind it is that we had these. Uh, Year, a couple of years back, right? We had these Biff beanies that that we made, and we made a lot of them. And uh, and I went up to visit the office a, a few years ago, and the the Biff crew sent me on my way with, I mean, far too many Biff beanies to be useful in my house. Uh, so they they sit in a little nook in our house, and there's I'd say thirty plus. And, oh, and really? the real catalyst here is that my wife doesn't like the Biff beanies taking up space in the house anymore. So um, <laughs> I'm trying to keep, you know, heads heads warm as we enter the winter months, uh, spread the Biff brand a little bit. Uh, but mostly I just need to clear out space in, in the house. <laughs> <laughs> spread the Biff warmth. Oh, <laughs> the, the gift of of knowledge and, and warm brains. Um, but yeah, guys, good, good roundup here. I'm looking forward to, uh, finishing this one out. Yeah, for sure. Well, we will see you all next week. Until then, you can check out our past episodes at biffbites.com. And to all of our students for the November exam, we wish you good luck. We're getting into the final stretch. The exam will be here before you know it. Best of luck as you round out your studies. Uh, don't don't overlook. Last plug. Don't overlook the YouTube channel. 
or <laughs> the archives of these these Biff Bites podcasts because you know what there's been some question palooza episodes that students have really loved there's there's even very focused things that we've recorded um, on a specific topic and we've brought in some questions from from uh, you know our CFP process so a lot of great Biff resources out there. And um, if you're looking ahead toward March, be sure to give us a ring uh, so we could talk a little bit about our program. Awesome. Jerry, I think that's your cue to get the fast pharmaceutical voice yeah. <laughs> about solicitation. Throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, until then, everyone, study on. <laughs>